Hello and welcome to my show, Shuvra Deb with you, with me, your host, Shuvra Deb. In this show, I will be discussing mental health with the aim of raising mental health awareness in our community and in society as a whole. The genesis of the show is my own pivotal life-changing experience of being in a Category 5 hurricane back in 2017. That experience led me to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. I am hosting this show in order to let you know that you are not alone if something life-changing has happened to you from which you are struggling to heal. Shuvra Deb with you focuses on a range of topics relevant to mental health and to raising awareness of issues surrounding mental health. Hello everyone and welcome back to my show, Shuvra Deb with you, where I help you to prioritize and look after your own mental health and that of those you love and care about. As you will know, and for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, my show is about raising awareness around the topic of mental health. I want us all to be living in a society where looking after our own mental health and that of those we love and care about is no longer stigmatized as is currently the case in many parts of society. I want us all to live in a world where we no longer make the distinction between mental and physical health and where each and every aspect of our health is considered in an inclusive way. Whilst my show is about raising awareness around the issue of mental health, I do want to make it clear at the very outset that I'm not a mental health professional and I'm not a qualified medical doctor. If you need to seek professional help, then that is what you should do, whether by calling your local national mental health helpline reaching out to a mental health charity, or by seeing your GP or other medical doctor. Last week, you heard me speak about preparing for the new and using the upcoming summer break to have a break, to have a check-in to see where we are with our goals, and maybe to get back on the wagon of your goals if you have fallen off the wagon for whatever reason. I also talked about some of the blocks and some areas of resistance that we may be facing when it comes to going for and getting the things we know we want to achieve. It might be that we are afraid of failure. It might be that we have low self-worth or low self-esteem. Or it might be that we care just a little bit too much about what other people may think about us. If any of this resonates with you, I invite you to jump on my podcast and check out the last episode of Shuvra Deb with you. You can find my podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, and other platforms. And last week's episode is episode number 26, and it's called Mental Health Preparing for the New. In that show, I also talked about mind over matter and neuroplasticity, and I will come back to that a little bit again today, so stay tuned for that. I also touched briefly on how, as students and as parents, we can use the summer to prepare for students going off to university. And the final topic about which I spoke last week was finding your purpose and activating abundance because it is by being in an abundance mindset as opposed to a scarcity, lack or fear mindset. By being in abundance, we start to move closer towards finding our purpose in life, which I truly believe is one of the most important aspects of our lives here right now. As part of that, last week I guided you through a plan that you can action right now on how to put your purpose into action. I feel that activating abundance and living life from an abundance mindset is so important that I am actually going to talk to you about it again today, so stay tuned for that too. 
But first, on today's show, I will be approaching the topic of isolation and mental health. From the perspective of isolation and its effects on teen mental health, isolation due to other causes such as depression, bereavement, job loss, a breakup, moving to a new place. And with all of that, I'll be taking you through some practical steps on how we can all build resilience in light of the isolation that we may be feeling, irrespective of why we may be feeling isolated. Building resilience is not just relevant in the context of isolation. We need to build resilience, each and every one of us, in order to be able to handle life's tough situations. And it doesn't have to be a natural disaster or or something that big that's our tough situation. It can be some other event that really affects us. Well, other big situations are divorce, death, sudden and unexpected changes of a different nature which don't have to be so big. But all of these situations require resilience. And with that, I give you a trigger warning. I will be discussing some sensitive topics today, so please listen mindfully. I will be talking about things such as suicide. So again, please do listen mindfully. Firstly, I want to look at isolation and teen mental health. Lisa Jarvis, writing for Bloomberg, also published in the Washington Post, leads her article with the headline, CDC report on teen mental health is a red alert. In this article, Jarvis writes that the CDC's biannual Youth Risk Behaviour Survey offers a heartbreaking and, for parents, terrifying glimpse of the state of teens' mental health. This trend, the article states, began before the pandemic, but seems to have been exacerbated by the isolation of the COVID-19 years, much of which was spent in isolation for preteens and teens away from their friends and other peer groups. The Bloomberg article goes on to say, Among the most troubling statistics, nearly 60% of teenage girls surveyed said they'd experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in the previous year, while 30% had seriously considered suicide. The causes that have been attributed to this decline in teen mental health are as follows. The article states, They live with the very real fear of someone barging into their classroom with a gun, which is a problem that is particular to the US in the context of this survey. They live with intense body image pressures exacerbated by Instagram scrolling and worry about the fallout from a momentary lapse of judgment on social media. Many are struggling with the existential threat of climate change. I will come back a little bit later onto some of the tools with which we may equip ourselves to be able to deal with these mental health issues. But back to the article and what it says. Jarvis writes, Every parent I know has the same question. Is there anything we can do to mitigate the damage? First is improving teens' sense of connectedness. Kathleen Etier, director of the CDC's Division of Adolescent and School Health, points to a large body of research showing that the more keyed in kids are to family and school, the better off they are. Those young people who feel that sense of connectedness will, 20 years later, have better mental health, are less likely to have attempted suicide and less likely to have used substances, Etia says. Jarvis continues by saying in her article, Connectedness also means forging healthy social relationships with peers. Teens missed so much critical in-person socialization time during the early stages of the pandemic, and social media was a poor and possibly even dangerous substitute, 
particularly for girls. We have a lot of correlative data showing that social media use, especially at high levels, is associated with mental health problems, says Jamie Howard, Director of Trauma and Resilience Service at the Child Mind Institute. As regards the harms of social media on teens and even preteens, Mitchell Prinstein, Chief Science Officer of the American Psychological Association, suggests that schools can reinforce in-person interactions by declaring school a social media-free zone and limiting recreational use of phones during the day. Kids have to learn sophisticated social skills in high schools, and if we don't teach them, they're not going to have them, Prinstein says. Which makes sense to me. I mean, it's not possible for a person to know how to connect with another person to communicate with them unless they actually do this, unless people actually socialize. Just because two people are in the same room, if they are also on their phones, caught up in their own world in the depths of social media scrolling, there is no connection between those two people. And that is a recipe for isolation and disconnection. Jarvis goes on to say in the article that parents need to step up their efforts here too. That means setting rules around devices and social media use and modeling that behavior themselves. For those worried about being the mean parent in your child's peer circle, blame the US Surgeon General Vivek Muthi, who recently wisely said that 13 years old is too young for social media. Looking at the mental health situation amongst teens from a slightly different perspective, the same Bloomberg article by Jarvis speaks to the signs that we can look out for in preteens and teens that may be signs of depression. She says that this can often show up as irritability rather than sadness in the younger demographic of society. She also suggests paying attention to whether the child's eating or sleeping habits have changed or if they no longer seem interested in activities they used to enjoy. The CDC's findings talk of the need for feeling connected, something which we may consider to be diminishing both post-COVID and all the fear-based rhetoric centering that, and also in the new age of social media and obsessive scrolling. It's with these new factors that are currently at play that the need to remember our human need for connection with each other becomes ever and even more important. As a friend of mine commented recently, what social media provides us with is a constant dopamine hit. Each time we see a new post, a video or a reel, our brains send out the signal that we have achieved something or the reward signal. It's the same sort of way our brains react when we get a prize or a medal for winning a race, for example, or the feeling we may experience when after hours or days of hard work, we have finally submitted our term paper or we have sent off a piece of work to a client with which we are happy. The dopamine hit in those kinds of situations has its place. We set our sights on a goal, then we work hard to get there, then our brain gets flooded with the reward hormone once that piece of work, task or sporting event is achieved or completed. However, to get the same kind of chemical reaction from scrolling on social media, looking at posts that are not even personal to us, that were not created by us, and that only really have a very passing relationship to us in our lives, is actually quite damaging. This kind of dopamine cycle does a few not so great things to our brains. One of those things that it does is that it shortens our attention span due to the constant changing nature of what we see in front of us in the form of short reels and videos, for example. 
It also has the capability to have a damaging impact on the brains of younger people. A recent article by Sarah Miller for Jefferson Health states the following. A recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, revealed that teens who use social media for more than three hours per day may be at heightened risk for mental health problems. Since the pandemic, there has been an uptick in depression and anxiety among teens, specifically low self-esteem, disordered eating, body image issues, and suicidal thoughts. Social media is designed to hook our brains, and teens are especially susceptible to its addictiveness, says Nancy DeAngelis, CRNP Director of Behavioral Health at Jefferson Health in Abington. Being aware of the addictiveness of social media and how to help your teens struggling with its effects is crucial, says Miller. Some of the ways in which we can avoid disconnectedness and isolation, be that from actually physically being isolated or as a result of some of the more negative effects of social media, are essentially to find ways of deepening our connection with others who are already in our lives. For pre-teens and teens, this can come in the form of remaining connected with peers and teachers at school, with social media use being limited. Connectedness in the family home also has its role to play. Joining after-school sports or other clubs is of huge benefit too for this age group. And if you're a pre-teen or teen listening to this thinking that there is no group that you really resonate with, maybe think about starting your own. Isolation in the context of working culture and the world of employment in an increasingly independent culture where working from home has become the norm for many, and for many workspaces, whether that's straightforward working at home or hot desking, it's important for employers to remember that their employees need to connect with each other. Whilst some people may be more than happy not to have to connect with their fellow co-workers and happily work away at home, there are others who thrive off collaboration and connectedness. So to keep the balance between both of these types of workers, some of the ways in which employers can encourage connectedness without forcing it too much include, for example, having once a month lunchtime sessions on, for example, stress management, achieving ambition and other related and relevant topics. Another way to maintain morale and connection is to start holding, for instance, biannual off-site events. Be these workshops helping your workers find ways in which to get or to stay motivated or whether it's something a little more outside the box, such as holding retreats in pre-organized spaces specifically made for retreats, where people can get together, get outside into nature or onto a yoga mat or into a cooking class. On a more personal level, outside of the context of being a younger person or an employee, you may be looking for ways in which to get more connected with other people. Some of the ways in which you can achieve a sense of meaningful connection can be quite simple. The first is to smile. That's right, smile. When another driver lets you out at a junction, for example, give them a little wave and a smile. I always love it when someone waves and smiles at me when I stop to let them out. Or at the grocery store, greet your fellow shopper with a smile. And if you live in a city where the smiling at strangers thing is still deemed a bit too strange, take your smile to the checkout clerk. You will actually be connecting with them through the very transaction of buying your groceries with their help anyway, so smile at them. And if you're using a self-checkout machine, then I'm afraid we're back to smiling at your fellow shopper. Yes, I hear you. You're a New Yorker, you're a Londoner or a dweller of another city. Well, I invite you to smile at strangers anyway. That one smile will make you feel connected and may just brighten up somebody else's day. 
and they may go on to smile at someone else, causing this ripple effect of a group of people having a slightly higher energy, a slightly higher elevated vibration, all of which are good things, my friends. In the context of the relationships you have with people in your life, be that friendships, familial relationships, say with your siblings, parents, aunts, uncles or cousins, marriages or otherwise romantic relationships, I cannot overstate the importance of quality connections here. Without these, you will fall into disconnectedness and with the people you care about the most. I experienced this on a personal level and trust me, it sucks when you end up in that place of disconnectedness and essentially separation. It's all too easy to get together, have coffee, lunch, dinner, drinks, a date even, and during all that time, not really discuss anything meaningful. It's too easy to just talk about your day, the work you have on, the essay you've just written, the meetings you've had with other people that day. And by doing that, we miss the point of spending time with that other person or those other people, if you're in a family group or with your buddies in a group. We miss the moment. And we miss the moment because we are absorbed in events that happened or, or may happen. We're soaked up in gossip or in joking about something funny. All of which has its place, of course it has its place. But there is more to the relationships that we have with these people for whom we care deeply. You see, it's in those closer, deeper relationships that I think we can start to take the presence of the other person or people for granted. We start to use them as a sounding board for everything that may be going on in our lives, or we end up asking them too many questions about events. And by doing that, by talking, talking all the time about people, places, events, we miss the joy of experiencing connection, of exchanging ideas, of learning how the other is actually feeling about something. And also quite often when we're in a conversation, I think we can find ourselves not really listening. And I am just as guilty of this and many of the other things I'm talking about. Rather than listening, truly listening to what the other person or people are saying whilst they are talking, instead of listening, we are already formulating what our next contribution to the conversation is going to be. And when we're doing that, we're not conversing. Instead, we're having a series of monologues or soliloquies in front of the other person or people. The gaps between when people speak and we are not speaking are not there to be filled by our thoughts on what we will say next. Those gaps are there to afford us the valuable opportunity to listen. And I mean really listen to what is being said to us. Instead of sitting down to watch TV over a glass of wine, which, by the way, is not a meaningful way at all in which to spend time with someone you care about, or indeed with anyone for that matter, I invite you to try a few other things. Eye gazing. Do this with a friend or someone else you care about. Stand or sit opposite each other and gaze into each other's eyes. Yes, you heard me. Gaze into each other's eyes for about two to three minutes. I just invite you to try that and you will learn and feel so much about each other. And if that level of close connectivity is a bit too uncomfortable to begin with, try soul gazing. Again, do this with a friend or someone else you care about. Sit with that other person for a few moments. Then feel into and think of and write down on a piece of paper three things about that person. And I'm talking characteristics such as their kindness, their joy, their empathy, 
not the more superficial things such as how good looking they might be or that they dress well or smell nice. Another way to increase connection with the people we care about is to go for walks together. You would be surprised by how much walking can be an inducement to meaningful conversation. Another way is to share in a hobby together, which could be cooking classes or pottery making classes. Or go get a manicure or a pedicure together, which will be fun and you can have a giggle with your companion. If it's a mutual friend's birthday, graduation or housewarming or some other event coming up, go gift shopping together. You'll have a giggle and you'll likely learn something about the other person, about their likes and dislikes and how that feeds into the gifts they choose for others, how they think when buying something else for someone else. You could also try playing the 5-4-3-2-1 game. And this came up in my previous show where I spoke with Rohan Marshall. You can find that also on my podcast, Shuvradeb With You, available on Spotify, Google, Apple, and all other platforms. I would tell you which show it was, but I can't remember, so you'll just have to go and have a look. So, the 5-4-3-2-1 game. And this is fun. What it is, is a series of questions you ask of the other about you. And it goes like this. What are five things you love about me? What are four things I like? What are three things I am good at? What are two things I say a lot? What is one thing you would change about me? It's a bit of a Mr. and Mrs. game, but I think it translates well to other close relationships too. And it helps us to understand how we are seen by those about whom we care the most and where there's room for improvement. Going back to the topic of isolation and mental illness, both of these things can be circular, one causing the other, one feeding the other. In other words, whilst isolation can lead to mental health problems, mental health issues can cause isolation. By our nature, human beings are social animals. It's by living in packs that our ancestors survived that we're here at all today. On a neurobiological level, oxytocin is a hormone which, when released, gives us that warm, fuzzy feeling. Beyond just that feeling, oxytocin also has the power, amongst other things, to promote trust, empathy, positive memories, and the processing of an encouragement of bonds and positive communications with others. Alexandra Owens, writing in Psychom.net, also tells us that thanks to oxytocin, we get a toasty, tranquil feeling when we're with the people we care about. And the more we engage in these feel-good behaviours, the more oxytocin we get. You might even call it addictive. So how do we get the flow and release of oxytocin going? going? Owen says this, For the most part, releasing oxytocin requires one thing, another person. Almost any form of social bonding or positive physical contact can trigger oxytocin. One study on chimpanzees even found that sharing a meal does the trick. Key in triggering the feel-good hormone is connection and connection with other people and sometimes even animals, that is your pet dog or cat for example. And even more interesting is that one research review, whilst not conclusive, the review has shown that the release of oxytocin could help to combat stress and anxiety. And you can go to the show notes on my podcast for the links to all of these studies if you're interested. What follows from this is that without social interaction, it is likely 
that there will be fewer occasions of the release of the oxytocin hormone in our bodies, which in turn means fewer incidences of feeling connected with other people and feeling good as a result of those connections. So with it in mind that humans are social animals neurobiologically, there is good to be had from connecting with other humans. And it's not just me saying this. The US Surgeon General Vivek Murthy is quoted in another Bloomberg article, also by Lisa Jarvis, as saying, the US is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness and isolation that can be as harmful to our health as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Murthy also offers practical fixes public policies and spaces that bring people together, as well as simple things like texting a friend or volunteering. Interestingly, and as regards some of the physical health impacts of isolation versus connectedness, emerging research suggests people with a strong social network can better manage their diabetes, which in turn can prevent complications from the disease. During the pandemic, the Bloomberg article says, Fewer people died in U.S. counties with strong social ties. And a sense of community is crucial to the long-term mental health of young people, linked to lower instances of attempted suicide and substance abuse, Kathleen Etia, director of the CDC's Division of Adolescent and Social Health, stated recently. The article continues, Murthy's report outlines many practical steps, including policies that encourage connectivity, such as paid family leave, or establishing physical spaces such as libraries and parks where people can come together. And more physicians need to recognize social isolation as a health risk and in turn be armed with the tools to monitor for it and help their patients address it. Murthy continues with some great advice to the not so lonely amongst us. He says, and if you're reading this and thinking that these feelings of isolation don't describe you, that's wonderful. And also, your work is not done. You are part of the glue that holds us all together and can contribute to a happier, healthier society. That can manifest in very simple ways, like smiling and saying hello to your neighbour. It could be resisting the urge to make a negative comment when the grocery line moves too slowly or your coffee order is wrong. Having explored the value of human connectedness as one of the tools for avoiding isolation, what is something else that we can do to overcome the effects of isolation and loneliness? Well, I think that being able to build resilience is a key factor. And this goes hand in hand with where events or situations have caused us to feel isolated, either because we have withdrawn from our connections or because we have been caused to move away from them, perhaps physically because we have had to move job, home or location generally. But what are some of the stages we must go through before we can get to a place of being resilient? When we experience big life events, such as divorce, job loss, loss of a home, bereavement, or some other stressful life event, the first thing we need to be able to do is to accept what has happened. We need to be able to accept what has happened. And then, we must accept and process the emotions that we are feeling that accompany the big life-changing event that we are going through. Be that sadness, or sadness disguised as anger, or anguish or anxiety, whatever we are feeling needs to be, well, felt. For example, if we are feeling sadness at what has happened or is happening to us, but we bury that, and it then comes out of us in the form of anger, 
We are only, albeit unconsciously, we are using that sense of anger to bury the sadness. But by doing that, the emotion stays within our minds, our bodies, and our energy fields. And by lingering around us in those ways, in those places, we are not expelling those lower vibrational energies. In other words, we are not fully confronting and dealing with the situation at hand. If you break your arm, for example, and you go to the doctor about this, you would not expect or be very happy for your doctor to give you some painkillers, take an x-ray, loosely put your arm in a sling and then send you off on your way home. When what's really required for that arm to fully heal is a plaster cast around the arm, as well as the painkillers, the x-ray and the sling. No, if that happened, you would probably complain and go somewhere else to ensure that the injury is treated properly and to ensure that your arm can heal fully so that you get full use of it back. Our emotional reactions to life events are the same. We need to realize we are having the emotions that we are having. We need then not to bury them. In the same way, you probably wouldn't get back on the basketball pitch with your broken arm pretending to yourself and your buddies that nothing was wrong. We need to confront and process our emotions, whether that's by ourselves, allowing ourselves to be sad, to cry, to journal, or whether that's by seeking help from an external source by seeing a licensed therapist or a Reiki healer or some other form of physician or spiritual healer, sometimes in tandem with each other. It's hard to hide a broken arm. Each time we go to drive our car or to open the door to the fridge in the kitchen to feed ourselves or others, with a broken arm, we wince in pain and the broken arm is unmissable by us and by those around us, not least because of the excruciating pain we will no doubt be experiencing. Hiding and not dealing with hurt emotions is no different. Whilst we can act in ways, we can put on masks and we can pretend that everything is okay, but by not dealing with the hurt emotions, be they from long ago past events and therefore what are now memories, or be they from a recent life event, hiding and burying what we are feeling, what we are going through is only going to cause a quiet, internal, excruciating pain a pain that is not visible to us after long enough of burying, and a pain that is not immediately visible to anyone else, making it difficult for us, impossible even, to develop meaningful human connections with each other. And by burying those emotions, by allowing that excruciating internal pain to quietly persist and to simmer away, whilst we may maintain outward appearances of happiness and everything being okay, we are only hurting ourselves, as well as most likely those around us. So the first step is to accept the pain, the sadness, and then to confront it and essentially treat it. It's only once we have done each of those things that we can build resilience. Having discussed some of the life events that can cause trauma, adversity, or mental unwellness, Let's look at resilience and how we can all build resilience in order to overcome these past and also future adversities. I want to start, though, by looking at what resilience is not. Resilience is not something we are born with. Resilience is not a personality trait or some kind of inherent characteristic. It is not pretending that something awful that has happened to us has not affected us. It is not burying or suppressing emotions and feelings. It is not grit and determination. Resilience is not grinning and bearing it. Resilience is not endurance.
That is, how much can someone endure? How much can someone take on? Or how much can they go through? Neither is resilience about strength. Most of the people closest to me sometimes say to me that I'm one of the strongest people they know, for various reasons, I guess, but mainly, I think, as a result of the post-Hurricane Irma steps I have taken actively to recover from the PTSD from which I suffered. But resilience is not strength. If I come across as strong, well, I have news for you. I'm no stronger than any of you. I may just seem that way because I have a naturally happy and joyful disposition most of the time. But don't let that fool you. We are all in this boat together. We all experience pain. Whether we allow that pain to turn into suffering is where we have the choice. We all have that choice. With that said, resilience is not about bouncing back, whatever that even means anyway. We are not rubber balls or rubber robots who are required to bounce back from adversity, tragedy or trauma. What resilience is, is that it is the ability not to go back to where we were before the event that caused us sadness, pain or grief, before the event of trauma, if that's what it was. One of the things that resilience is, is that it is the ability to move forward from that pain, sadness and grief. Resilience is the ability to grow. Resilience is the ability to confront and deal with what has happened to us, not to box it away, no, but to use the event or events to shape who we are becoming and to grow into who we will become. Because nothing ever stays the same and our concept of chronological time as we have now come to understand it does not have a backward motion. We are always in the present with the future ahead of us. Resilience is also about belief. After going through something devastating or traumatizing, we have to believe that we can rise above the situation, that we can rise to a higher vibration in how we perceive ourselves in view of that situation and also in how we view the situation itself. Those of you who tuned into my show last week, which was episode 26 for those of you listening on the podcast, you will have heard me speak about mind over matter and neuroplasticity. I spoke about how when we set a goal, the part of our brain that controls emotional response makes a decision on how important that goal is to us. The more important the goal, the tougher the challenge, the harder that part of the brain will work to galvanize itself, to conspire with us to make our goal a reality in our real life lived manifest lives. If you missed that episode, I really encourage you to go check it out as I talk about some really interesting experiments and studies that have been undertaken on mind over matter and neuroplasticity, which I think will encourage you. I feel to know and to believe, to truly believe, that you can change your perception on or about something to fuel a different and a better outcome for yourself. Now, you may not be able to do all this by yourself. You may need or you may want outside help, be that from a psychologist, energy healer, life coach, or some other type of person who can help you. In order to enable the neuroplasticity aspect of our brains to conspire with us to help build our resilience, the American Psychological Association writes about resilience that it is like building a muscle. Increasing your resilience takes time and intentionality. Focusing on four components, connection, wellness, healthy thinking and meaning can empower you to withstand and learn from difficult and traumatic experiences, to increase your capacity for resilience to weather and grow from the difficulties, use these strategies. 
Those strategies, four of them, are building connections through relationships, which I've already touched on today as an aspect of dealing with isolation. The second strategy to resilience is to have a wellness practice. The third is healthy thinking. And the fourth is finding meaning or a purpose. Again, something I've discussed on shows before. The APA's take on building relationships and connection is the following. Connecting with empathetic and understanding people can remind you that you're not alone in the midst of difficulties. Focus on finding trustworthy and compassionate individuals who validate your feelings, which will support the skill of resilience. The pain of traumatic events can lead some people to isolate themselves, but it's important to accept help and support from those who you care about and who care about you. And I think for those of us who have experienced a traumatic event or some other kind of event that has led us to feel deep pain, it is all too easy to isolate ourselves. I know I do that. I certainly did that after Hurricane Irma, genuinely feeling that I could not relate to most other people who had not been through the same thing. But that, as I came to learn, was a symptom of the PTSD. I also tend to go inward when having a rough time outside of the trauma context, whether that's a relationship breakup, a bereavement or some other kind of issue. And whilst those inward moments can be of great assistance, as those moments of inward reflection and introspection offer insights, solutions and healings that we would miss if we were out and about distracting ourselves the entire time. At the same time, I have come to learn that maintaining a balance is really, really important. And if you don't feel like connecting with a whole bunch of people and don't fancy being out in a group or a crowd, I do encourage you to maintain a connection and spend time with at least one other person on a regular basis, whether that's a friend or family member. It will do you the world of good, I promise, as maintaining those kinds of deep connections help us to shift our energy into something more positive when we may be feeling stuck. The second strategy for building resilience, as recommended by the American Psychological Association, is to maintain wellness. About this, the APA says, Self-care may be a popular buzzword, but it's also a legitimate practice for mental health and building resilience. That's because stress is just as much physical as it is emotional. Promoting positive lifestyle factors like proper nutrition, ample sleep, hydration and regular exercise can strengthen your body to adapt to stress and reduce the toll of emotions like anxiety or depression. Whilst these aspects of self-care may seem like stating the obvious, it is quite often the obvious places where we need to start first in order to be able to build a strong foundation and then the building blocks to rest on that foundation. I know for a fact that I feel mentally and physically sluggish when I'm not eating nutritious whole foods and when I'm grabbing for the processed foods or the takeouts. The right amount of good quality sleep is so important too. And if you're struggling with that, then the other aspects of self-care, including proper nutrition, hydration and regular exercise, can help to reset and promote healthy sleep. Related to this, the APA advises against relying on negative outlets. They say, it may be tempting to mask your pain with alcohol, drugs or other substances, but that's like putting a bandage on a deep wound. Focus instead on giving your body resources to manage stress rather than seeking to eliminate the feeling of stress altogether. And this goes back to what I was discussing earlier about not burying or masking sadness and pretending that everything is okay as that can cause us to numb the pain through the use of negative outlets such as alcohol, drugs, 
gambling or some other distracting and addictive behaviour. The third aspect to building resilience set out by the American Psychological Association is to embrace healthy thoughts. What they say about this is, how you think can play a significant part in how you feel and how resilient you are when faced with obstacles. Try to identify areas of irrational thinking, such as a tendency to catastrophize difficulties or assume the world is out to get you, and adopt a more balanced and realistic thinking pattern. For instance, if you feel overwhelmed by a challenge, remind yourself that what happened to you isn't an indicator of how your future will go and that you are not helpless. You may not be able to change a highly stressful event, but you can change how you interpret and respond to it. The APA also talks about acceptance, as I have already mentioned. They say, accept that change is a part of life. Certain goals or ideals may no longer be attainable as a result of adverse situations in your life. Accepting circumstances that cannot be changed can help you focus on circumstances that you can alter. Whilst accepting a difficult, unchosen change in our lives is probably one of the most difficult things to do. After all, as humans, we don't like change, not really. Even when we have made an active choice to change something in our lives, that situation can be accompanied by stress and doubt. So dealing with a change that has been thrust upon us when we weren't ready or willing can be really difficult. And the first step to dealing with it, to building resilience around it, is to accept the situation. Once we have started to move towards acceptance, the energies can start to shift. We can start feeling less stuck, less helpless, and less hopeless. Instead, we can start to forge a new way ahead, and who knows what new paths and opportunities can arise. I certainly find this works for me. In the last seven years, a good number of events have taken place in my life that were not of my conscious choosing. And I'm not just talking about Hurricane Irma. But these events are all gradually showing me that the more I fight what has happened, and I mean internally fight, the more difficult I make life for myself, the more stuck I become, the less I am able to move forward and move on from the event, the people, whatever it might be. The fourth aspect of building resilience is another topic that I've discussed previously and is one of my favorite topics, and that is about purpose and meaning. It doesn't necessarily have to be your purpose in life. Any purpose or meaning is a good start. The American Psychological Association says about this, whether you volunteer with a local homeless shelter or simply support a friend in their own time of need, you can garner a sense of purpose, foster self-worth, connect with other people and tangibly help others, all of which can empower you to grow in resilience. Be proactive, they also say. It's helpful to acknowledge and accept your emotions during hard times, but it's also important to foster self-discovery by asking yourself, what can I do about a problem in my life? If the problems seem too big to tackle, break them down into manageable pieces. The APA continues, for example, if you got laid off at work, you may not be able to convince your boss it was a mistake to let you go, but you can spend an hour each day developing your top strengths or working on your resume. Taking initiative will remind you that you can muster motivation and purpose even during stressful periods of your life, increasing the likelihood that you'll rise up during painful times again. And it's by taking the initiative that we take back the charge and control of our own lives. 
For example, rather than just going hour by hour to pre-arranged meetings or other types of gatherings or reacting to emails, to calls, to requests for meetings, by taking the initiative on something, whatever that may be, we become empowered, all of which leads us to feel better about ourselves and our lives. Of course, your job may require you to be reactive in some part at least, but it doesn't have to be so in its entirety. You can work with the need to be reactive. Work out where you need to be reactive and then work out where you can be in control. For example, if your work is very client-driven and if a client asks for something, you have to respond to that request. Depending on the nature of your work, where you can take the initiative and maintain control is, for example, by setting a healthy boundary of reacting and responding when you are ready to do so, after you have properly thought through what the client request entails. And chances are that by taking a step back and spending at least some time thinking about the request, your response will be a lot better and it will certainly be less reactive. I mean, of course, that doesn't always work. If you're an emergency room doctor, nurse or other worker in that scenario, urgency is usually key, the clue being in the name emergency. But not all situations in life need an immediate and urgent reaction. About building resilience through fostering purpose, the APA tells us to move toward your goals, develop some realistic goals and do something regularly, even if it seems like a small accomplishment. That enables you to move toward the thing that you want to accomplish. Instead of focusing on tasks that seem unachievable, ask yourself, what is one thing I know I can accomplish today that helps me move in the direction I want to go? For example, if you're struggling with the loss of a loved one and you want to move forward, you could join a grief support group in your area. The American Psychological Association's final thoughts on resilience are, look for opportunities for self-discovery. People often find that they have grown in some respect as a result of a struggle. For example, after a tragedy or hardship, people have reported better relationships and a greater sense of strength, even while feeling vulnerable. That can increase their sense of self-worth and heighten their appreciation for life. And there are other ways in which you can build resilience. And you don't need to wait until life hands you a difficult deck of cards to get on with these or indeed any of the tools that I've been discussing with you today. In fact, by starting to build resilience when we are in a good place, we will be in a better place inside ourselves to deal with the more challenging moments in life when they come along. A simple thing we can all do is to read a book or listen to an audio book or we can read an article or listen to a podcast involving the life stories of others who have overcome adversity. I do this quite regularly and I find that by reading these kinds of stories or listening to people open up about them, I get buoyed and encouraged by their paths and their journeys to self-discovery and overcoming adversity. Another way to build resilience is to use my 15-minute rule, about which I have spoken before on quite a few of my previous shows. By taking 15 minutes a day or longer if you're able to, to, for example, acquire a new skill or pursue a new hobby, we are latching onto the sense that we are autonomous beings who are actually in charge of our lives, doing something for ourselves. By activating abundance, something that I have also spoken about before, we not only move towards our goals, but we also become more grateful and we become more resilient. An aspect of resilience is outlook. Seeing the positive angle 
in not such a great situation, seeing the opportunity that the situation presents is an aspect of resilience. And by activating abundance, we can live from a place of seeing the opportunity, the abundance, rather than living from a place of fear, lack or scarcity. I will let you go back to my previous show on the podcast, Chuva Deb with you, available on Spotify, Apple, Google and other platforms where I speak about activating abundance and let you have a listen to that. Because by activating abundance, we are living from a place of gratitude. And by living in a place of gratitude, we become stronger, we become more positive and we build resilience. Another aspect of building resilience is to seek professional help when we need it. When we are feeling isolated, depressed, anxious or something else, one of the most important things to do is to reach out for help and to reach out for professional help. I have spoken before about an article on BBC News about Ed Sheeran, the musician, which has in its title that Sheeran didn't want to live after his friends Jamal Edwards and Shane Warne died. And I want to discuss this again, as I think Sheeran is so candid in what he says. And I think what he says applies to so many of us. Sheeran openly said to Rolling Stones magazine that he had dealt with his depression throughout his life and felt those feelings resurface in the year that his friends passed away. He described his experience of depression in this way. You're under the waves drowning. You're just sort of in this thing and you can't get out of it. He then so very honestly said, especially as a father, I feel really embarrassed about it. And there lies one of the many difficulties that we face in dealing with mental health issues. And that is the shame and fear or judgment or rejection that so many of us can feel that we will face if we try to seek help or to talk to someone about our struggles. And not being able to open up can be cultural too. Sheeran says, no one really talks about their feelings where I come from. He said, people think it's weird getting a therapist in England. I think it's very helpful to be able to speak with someone and just vent and not feel guilty about venting. And as I've said before, I do attest to this too. I do think that certain parts of the world welcome therapy more than others. Sheeran then says, obviously, I've lived a very privileged life. So my friends would always look at me like, oh, it's not that bad. He continues, the help isn't a button that is pressed where you are automatically okay. It is something that will always be there and just has to be managed. He says that it's his wife who encouraged him to seek help. The BBC article marking Sheeran's experiences of mental illness and depression raises some really valid and poignant issues. Firstly, the shame that can come with suffering a mental illness. Then there are the cultural issues surrounding seeking help for mental illness. Assumptions of something like privilege can make someone, again, feel ashamed about feeling the way they are feeling. And the fact that just because we have pressed the help button, there is no miracle cure and quite often the symptoms of the illness just need to be managed. And finally, the importance of getting help. Looking at each of these, shame. Shame comes from public stigma and the attitudes that go with that towards mental health and illness and our own feelings towards these. One of the ways in which we may start to overcome this sense of shame from stigma is to not identify with the illness. For example, you are not your addiction. 
you are not your depression. Your addiction is a coping mechanism. The depression is an illness. It is not who you are. By taking that point of view, it may be easier to reach out for professional help. Then there are the cultural issues. And I think this one ties in with the issues around shame. In some cultures, maintaining order and decorum, i.e. form over substance, is still deemed to be more important than being authentic. And there is no quick or easy solution to this one. Change comes with time, and it's often better for things to develop organically than just as a result of a knee-jerk reaction. Quick reactions lead to resentments and can often cause any good work that has been done to be undone. So one of the things we can all do is to contribute in our own small way to destigmatize a culture's view around mental illness and mental health. I talk quite a bit about having a mental health check-in buddy. What I mean by this is having a friend or relative, someone who you trust and who trusts you, to be there for you when you're going through a tough time, or just generally be there. Your mental health check-in buddy will be someone with whom you feel comfortable to share details of any particular situation or emotion or anything that you're going through, and vice versa for them with you. So if you've shared with your mental health check-in buddy that you're going through some difficulties and that they're really getting you down, your buddy will be someone who maintains regular contact with you. So something like a simple text message to say, hey, how are you doing? By seeing that message, by being asked that question which requires a response, we are reassured that our friend is thinking of us and our welfare, and we know that we matter. Because everybody matters. It's just sometimes that we all need a reminder of how much we matter and that someone somewhere cares for us. So if we each have a mental health check-in buddy, that is a small step in the direction towards normalizing mental health care. By taking this seemingly small step, we are caring for our own mental health and the mental health of another person. Back to the article on Ed Sheeran's mental health experiences. He talks about assumptions of privilege or assumptions generally. And I can relate to this one firsthand. After Hurricane Irma, I felt shame for not being more grateful to be alive. When I was told by others who were well-intentioned, and this is not a criticism of them, I was being told how lucky I was to be alive. And so unconsciously, I think at the time, I felt shame for not feeling lucky. And so I did my best to bury the feelings I was having. I did my best to bury the PTSD symptoms. What Sheeran says about being privileged and there being an assumption as a result of how bad can it be shows that anyone from any background, irrespective of wealth, fame, job, the car they drive, can suffer mental health issues. And a simple step we can all take to help even the ground on this one is to not make those assumptions about who or what someone is and what they may be feeling based on just outward appearances. Sheeran says that even when he got help, pressed the help button, there was no miracle or immediate cure. Which raises the point of the importance of maintaining day-to-day mental health, whatever shape that comes in for you. It might be daily check-ins with your mental health check-in buddy. It might be weekly therapy sessions. It might be commitment to a regular daily gym practice. It might be a daily walk, or it might be a combination of all of these things or other things. But maintenance is key. As you would with your home or car, Almost everything falls apart without maintenance. I have talked to you today about mental health and isolation and about how we can build resilience in order to weather the storms when they come along 
just a little bit better than perhaps we would have done without having built resilience. If any of the issues I have discussed today have affected you, please reach out to someone for professional help. You can call your local National Mental Health Helpline, reach out to a mental health charity, or see your GP or other medical doctor. In an emergency, please dial your country's relevant emergency number and seek help. Please do not suffer alone. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in to my show, Shuvra Deb, with you every Thursday at 2pm, right here on Bobo 89.1 FM, here in the Cayman Islands. And for those of you listening on the podcast, which is available on Spotify, Apple, Google and other platforms, for you guys, if you want to catch my show as it drops first on the radio, be sure to tune in. All of you can find me on the radio live and online every Thursday at 2pm Eastern Standard Time on Bobo FM 89.1 at dmsbroadcasting.ky. And if you miss a show, please be sure to go check it out on my podcast, Spotify, Apple, Google and other platforms carry it. And if you are listening on the podcast and you like what you hear, please follow, review and share my show. Please tell your friends about it so that they can get involved too. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for listening to Shuvra Deb with you. And please do tune in every Thursday at 2 p.m., on Bobo FM 89.1 for more topics related to and relevant to mental health. If any of you would like to reach out to me directly about any of the issues I've discussed, please do email me at shuvradeb82 at gmail.com. That's spelt S-H-U-V-R-A-D-E-B, the numbers 82 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. The Shuvra Deb With You podcast is inspired and brought to you by Shuvra Deb. Copyright Shuvra Deb.